Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. On today's show, who are Canada's narwhals? These are companies with a shot at becoming the next unicorns. We'll find out more from Charles Plant, who joins us regularly on the show. We'll also get a state of the greater Vancouver building industry from Jason Turcotte, another BIV regular. We'll get some of the challenges facing the companies that are building housing supply in the region. First, we have two events coming up I'd like to draw your attention to. BIV's Business Excellence Series is kicking off 2019 with two very interesting panel discussions. On February 21st, we have a panel of experts who will discuss the due diligence required when buying a business. On February 28th, our Retirement Ready panel will walk through how to successfully get yourself out of business and into a healthy, wealthy, successful retirement. Both events are at the Shangri-La Hotel. Both start at 3.30 p.m. And of course, both have more information available over at BIV.com events. You're listening to BIV Today. For three years now, the Impact Centre at the University of Toronto has studied Canada's narwhals. These are young private Canadian companies that have the potential to scale up and find success on the world stage. Charles Plant is the director of the Impact Centre and he joins me now with a look at this year's list of the top 50 narwhals. Charles, good to have you back on the show. Thanks for coming on. Great to be back again. What can you tell us about the average narwhal in 2018? Um... Well, we've got a great thing happening, slowly but surely. The average narwhal is getting bigger and bigger and getting more onto the international stage, at least in the world of information technology, if not in health tech. And so the average health tech one seems to be declining, but the average infotech one seems to be growing bit by bit, getting more money, growing faster, and it's a great sign for things to come in Canada. What is underlying that movement that you're seeing and sort of the differences you're seeing between the information tech side of things and the healthcare tech side of things? Well, that's a good question and sort of difficult to answer. Health tech isn't getting the opportunity in Canada because we've got a system that sort of works against it. We don't have the natural buying process that actually will uh, incubate health tech companies here, which makes it difficult for them to start up here. And then because of that, they don't get enough money and they have to export to start with. And it becomes a very much more complex process. In the infotech side, we're seeing a lot of companies getting more interest from US VCs, which are putting money in in larger amounts. uh, And that's enabling these companies to grow faster and take a position on the world stage they weren't able to take before. Hmm. Does that increased interest from US VCs, does that have to do more with the VCs and what they're looking for? Is it a sign that maybe our market here is getting more mature? Or there's more to offer investors? Well, yeah, I think there's more to offer investors. What an investor is looking for uh, south of the border is, because that's where the money's coming from, is a company that's in a, in a really big space. And more often than not now, that's in consumer-oriented spaces, in horizontal applications. And they're also looking for companies that can grow extremely rapidly. So they're looking for the element AIs and the rituals whose growth is exponential. They're growing maybe at 100% a year, and that's what they want. They're seeing those in Canada, so they're coming in here uh, and putting down money. Mm. And are companies here in tech, they're, they're learning to grow more rapidly? Is that a trend that you're noticing? 
I think it is. Uh, I think there's more of a conversation about that. And I think at the top end, people are reaching out and realizing that the American firms, the, the unicorns, are growing so rapidly and they're trying to emulate that. They're trying to say, okay, well, you know, if, if to be successful, you have to raise $100 million when we're five years old, then let's go out and do that. We're having slightly more experienced entrepreneurs because they've been it, through it once. And now they're going through the second time and they know what they uh, didn't know last time. And that's also influencing what's happening. You're looking, of course, just at the top 50 narwhals in this case. But I'm curious if there are maybe limits to the number of companies that could make a list like this. For example, is there a limit to the amount of skills that Canadian companies have access to or the amount of funding that's available? Well, I don't think there's any limit to the amount of funding that's available. If we can grow companies 100% a year, there's absolutely no problem in getting money. And the reason I say that is I've worked in Colombia for many years, and uh, they used to complain about a lack of venture capital, and I used to say, well, you don't have the companies to invest in. But they created two that are unicorns now, so they've been able to get $400 million of funding for one company that's only four years old. And it just shows the power of being able to create uh, super normal growth. As for personnel, I think we have the base of talent in the research and development side. In the technical side, we don't have the base of talent in the marketing and sales side. But I think that's okay because we need to be employing them closer to the marketplace anyway. So we shouldn't be limited by lack of marketing and salespeople in Canada. We should just go hire them in the States and let them work down there where the market is or in Europe where the market is. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Colombia, and of course, the report sheds light on our ability as a country to produce world-leading private tech companies here in Canada. Given our population and given maybe some comparable examples around the world, on average, how many unicorn companies should we be producing based on our population? Well, that's a real guess. I mean, if if it were based on population alone, we should maybe have 15 or 16. But I think uh, we'll never get to that level. Uh, and that would be unreasonable with U.S. having about 150. It'd be nice if we had about 10. And, you know, they some of them get sold, some of them grow on to uh, go on to get uh, have an IPO. So we should be producing a couple a year. And we haven't produced one since 2015. Hmm. And in that time since 2015, when the last uh, Kick Interactive became a unicorn, there are, I can't remember the number, something like 15 U.S. companies that started their businesses and became unicorns in the time that we haven't created one. <laughs> right. So <laughs> what are we doing wrong? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, we're just not uh, going into the big markets and we're not accelerating growth with massive amounts of capital. So mm. uh, it's it, little by little, though, we're solving these problems. How much of this can be attributed to what I've heard spoken about many times is this Canadian mindset of thinking too small or maybe not being as bold as we could be in our marketing or as aggressive as we could be in pitching companies. Can we attribute some of this to that? I think so. And and one of the reasons is there isn't a strong strong history of consumer product companies in Canada. I mean, try and think of a major consumer product brand like Heinz or or uh, Procter & Gamble that comes out of Canada, and it's hard to. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might consider Lululemon or um, Canada Goose as you know strong uh, brands, consumer brands, but they're rather relatively recent. So we don't have a history of consumer marketing. So we don't have people here locally that are experienced with it. So when companies try and enter, enter consumer markets from a technical field, there aren't other 
people they can draw upon for experience. That makes it really difficult. So I'm not sure if it's an attitude thing, but a lack of experience. And uh, um, because I haven't uh, tested for this attitude difference, and I don't see much of a difference, but I see a lot of difference in um, experience base. Mm-hmm. One of the trends we see too is a Canadian company being acquired by an American company, for example, and them leaving the ecosystem before they have the chance to really scale up and become one of these unicorns or world-class companies. What are you seeing in terms of trends when it comes to narwhals leaving the market before they reach their prime? Well, the great thing is there wasn't one that was sold last year. So uh, that was, that was tremendous. Unfortunately, we didn't have any IPOs either, but we had none of them sold. And what I think is happening is that uh, companies have to get sold for all sorts of reasons. But one of the reasons they get sold is they're not growing fast enough to get late stage capital because, uh, say, a VC in the U.S. wants them to be growing 60 to 100 percent a year. If they're only growing 30 to 40 percent a year, the investors aren't interested in putting 50 million dollars in. So they end up getting sold. So I think part of the reason we're not seeing sales is the companies have figured out how to grow faster. And because of that, they're able to get the late stage capital and keep their growth going towards an IPO in the future. That's not a bad thing at all. Yeah. Um, If we look around the country and the report highlights this, in Metro Vancouver, we have about one narwhal on the list for every four that you have in Greater Toronto. Now, Greater Toronto's population is not four times bigger than Metro Vancouver. So what do you attribute that difference to? I think we're four times as intelligent. (laughs) (laughs) I know many people who would disagree. (laughs) No, well, the the point is, since I was born in Vancouver, I think I can say that. Um, No, I think think Toronto just has uh, more in the software sector, which is making up that list. When I do, and I'm trying to remember other research I've done, there are some areas in which Vancouver is actually beating Toronto very solidly, and I can't remember where that is, and I'll have to figure that out. But if it's a community thing that is growing up in Toronto and in Kitchener-Waterloo that's very effective because it, it takes a village to, to incubate these narwhals and, and unicorns, and you know they figured out how to do it in Silicon Valley and Boston, and Toronto and Kitchener-Waterloo are sort of getting to that point. And uh, so it'll take a little while because of Vancouver's smaller population um, to to get to to that point. And it's almost like an exponential effect from having the bigger population. Mm -hmm. Toronto, of course, also is Canada's financial centre. Vancouver is not. So when you look at things that maybe the Vancouver region could learn from the Toronto region, accounting for the fact that we're not going to be the country's financial capital, what might we be able to learn in terms of building that ecosystem that seems to keep breeding more success? Well, don't look to Toronto to learn. Look to Seattle or Silicon Valley or something like that, where those places aren't the financial centres either. And they aren't the population centers compared to New York, and neither is Boston. So how does a small market like Vancouver emulate the action of a small market like San Francisco and Boston are to New York? And I think you find that the development of a community that sets certain standards and certain knowledge out there and certain expectations has a large part to it. And it's the idea of a cluster. And when you get a cluster developing, it is a self-fueling mechanism. And eventually some, some big companies arrive, uh, arise out of that cluster and they go on to form smaller ones. And it's, it's an organic thing in the world of technology development that uh, you really got to foster in a local, local place. 
Mm -hmm. Well, you now have three years of data. This is the third report you've put out for the Narwhal list. Based on what you've seen and the trends that are maybe emerging, what might you expect to see in 2019? I'm, I'm hoping that we're going to create two unicorns in 2019, which will be a great thing because then we'll be up to three. Uh, the, I think companies like Element AI and Ritual and maybe Lightspeed POS and, uh, and, and companies like that have the potential to become uh, unicorns. And I think that will attract more attention to the Canadian tech community and fuel further growth. And one thing it'll do, it, it will create a new bar for companies in Canada, whereas the bar might have been lower before about you know, growing to a certain size and selling. It will create a bar of, you know, to be great, you have to grow and become a narwhal, a unicorn, and then go public. And that, that will change the expectations and I think the dynamics of the community. Is something lost if a narwhal company decides to go public before reaching that unicorn status, or is it equally a success story if they choose to go public first or become a unicorn first? No, I think it's, it doesn't matter whether you become a unicorn or not. Shopify didn't. Uh, Shopify was still below a billion dollars in valuation when they became uh, had an IPO, and they're one of the most successful um, software companies out there in the market today. So I don't think you need to become a unicorn. The opportunities are greater now to become one because there's so much greater access to private capital. Mm-hmm. So whatever way, the, the, the objective is to create world-class companies. And if that means skipping the unicorn stage and going public earlier because you can fuel the growth with public funds, then that's great too. Charles Plant is the director of the Impact Centre at the University of Toronto. Charles, as always, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks. It's always great to chat. Every other week, my next guest has joined the show with insight and analysis on the greater Vancouver real estate market. Today, we're going to focus in on the business behind the product. Jason Turcott is the Vice President of Development at Cressy Development Group. He joins me today with insight into how the business of building is changing. Jason, good to have you back on the show. Thanks for coming on. Happy to be back. If you were to give us, let's say, a state of the industry address, so to speak, what would be the tone? What would you say... What would you have to say coming from a builder's perspective at this point in time? I would probably explain it with one word and that would be frustrated. Ah, okay. Tell me more. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, the general sentiment here is, um, you know, kind of everywhere we turn right now, it feels as though um, through, you know, government intervention or policy change or market condition. I mean, everything is sort of putting a pressure on our industry right now. Um, and I think we're certainly feeling um, the, 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 the effects of it and the change in the marketplace. And it's, it, is, it is an exceptionally frustrating time to try, I think, to be a business person in our, in our province, even more generally, but certainly in the development and construction industry right now, uh, a pretty frustrating time. Yeah, fair enough. Tell me a little bit about what happens when you have a raft of policy changes, uncertainty in the market. I mean, what happens behind the scenes for a developer trying to keep on top of all of this and still stay in business and produce product? Well, you know, we've talked about it before on on, on your show, and that is that that our business of developing real estate is is um you know it's it's a it's a a business that's based on maintaining margin and it, because we're leveraged um, and, and, and 
that's generally applies to all real estate. You know, we rely on financing through banks and other institutions, and those those lenders, um, in order to see projects actually, you know, see the light of day, require that we're able to maintain margins in projects. And uh, what's happening right now is is um, even you know things like property taxes, we can't even estimate what those taxes are because of the, the, the way these changes have been implemented, uh, the rate at which they've been implemented, the lack of clarity around um, what those changes will mean in terms of costs or whether they will apply or not apply to, to projects. The pro forma at this point in time is very, very difficult to pin down and to, to manage costs. Um, and uh, um, when you can't do that, when you can't have certainty of costs and, and an ability to show that you can develop a project with margin, you know, they don't happen. They get delayed or they get uh, put on the back burner or, or they simply no longer work financially. And you have to sort of rethink the whole model, and which means that, you know, you end up at a standstill. And um, unfortunately, what that will mean if it's prolonged is that people don't have work um, and that whether that's sub trades or or consultants or what have you, you know, that you I don't think we're far off here before we start to see uh, the real economic impacts of a lot of these, um, uh, I'll call them uh, uncertainties in our in our industry right now. Interesting. Would something trigger that or would it more so be just sort of the, the timelines have caught up with the industry, so to speak, and you then start to sort of see the impact that that's having? Yeah, I think it's the latter. So, you know, we work on a pre-sale basis in a lot of certainly condo market. I mean, real estate is not obviously real estate development is not limited to condo. We, you know, you've got rental housing and office buildings and industrial and all, all the rest of it. Um, you know, but but there's a lag generally between when a project actually starts and when it, you know, when it was underwritten. And so you're seeing projects now that are trying to get started and and uh, you know a marketplace that's changed. Still, we still are dealing with sky high construction costs. We've now got increased costs on on all fronts. Uh, development cost charges, property taxes are seeing. You know, this the whole cloud around property taxes right now is its own issue uh, in its own right, but. Um, yeah, it's not one trigger. It's just that there's a bit of a lag. So um, projects that have started in the last little while were probably sold um, in the early part of last year. Um, and uh, certainly the market on the condo side was still quite active then and it, it has slowed significantly since. And, and those projects trying to, trying to get off the ground today are going to be in a very different uh, position. Yeah. I think it's fair to say we went through kind of a, a reactive period of time when it came to policy around real estate. A lot of governments trying to maybe catch up where there was some inaction by predecessor governments. Do you think that was a phase and maybe the, the quick changes and the reactivity is going to cease? Or is it kind of a new normal in that you're entering this period of uncertainty and it's just going to be impossible to predict or, or assume what governments might do? Well, I'm hopeful that we've seen the, you know, the bulk of of the reactionary changes. And you're quite right. I do think a lot of these measures, and uh, we're still seeing some even at municipal level now, where where there are knee jerk um, legislative reactions or or policy change reactions to really unprecedented market conditions. You know, both across all sectors of, of real estate, frankly. Uh, and so, you know, I understand. Um, the responses in some ways, but I think that, you know, we ought to know that there's always unintended consequences and that marketplaces generally do take care of themselves. And certainly at times 
government intervention may be required, but there were just so many measures on so many levels that were implemented over such a short period of time. Um, it really did uh, probably, it was probably overkill and, uh, and you can't measure the effects of any one change very accurately when you're layering on multiple changes all at the same time. And so, and, and, and frankly, by the time these changes became reality, whether they be changes to PTT or school tax or empty homes, you name it. I mean, uh, uh, the market had already started to relax itself um, and and was in the process of taking a bit of a breather. So you layer these things on, on top um, and, you know, it, it becomes quite detrimental in, in, in our ability to, to continue to do business and supply housing, even though people continue to move here. Mm-hmm. I remember speaking to you at some point last year about this sort of patchwork of regulations we have jurisdiction to jurisdiction, even within the greater Vancouver region, and how that that may mean that if a developer really just can't move something forward in, let's say, Vancouver, they may then decide to focus more on other areas where they can get further along with fewer headaches, let's say. Have you seen that shift in attention happen at all? Developers may be deciding, you know what, I'm not going to touch Vancouver. I'm just going to work in, let's say, Surrey. Um, I can't say that I that I know of anyone specifically, but I can say, you know, anecdotally, even internally, we certainly have those conversations about whether it continues to make sense to be involved in certain um, municipalities. Um, um, we've we've had recent changes in government where you now have uh, municipalities who are outright opposed to development, and um, I think that's very short sighted. I think it's only going to create further problems for those particular cities as far as housing and affordability and um uh but you know we need to be aware of those things and we certainly make business decisions around the uh, around the viability of being able to get projects approved in a timely manner and have support of the community and the council and um so yeah i mean it happens do i know anybody who has expressly said you know i'm not working here or there no not so much but but it, it has a real impact on, on where your investment focus lies, for sure. Fair enough. And of course, it can be, it tends to be many, many years before a development gets off the ground when you factor in everything from acquiring land, going through the development or rezoning process, et cetera, and then building the building. If a developer has land that they've maybe struggled to get rezoned or they've been holding it for a long period of time, how difficult is it to sort of offload that real estate if they wanted to exit or do they just have to sort of eat the costs and and wait it out well you get you, you get either scenario frankly i mean it's, it's sort of hard to answer it with one particular answer but um there are times where you've you've had uh, new governments come in or changes that have you know made development viability or you put it into question or or, or taken away its viability um but we've unfortunately got now on top of that um an incredible amount of cost that's been put on top of holding land with all these property tax changes. We are right now in the midst of all these uh, uh, assessments that we've recently received where it appears as though the provincial government is trying to, in certain instances, tax um, development land uh, with uh, with the additional school tax that they implemented, which is very, very expensive. And of course, where does that go? It goes right into the cost base of new housing. Uh, and either, you know, either it increases the cost of that new housing unit, going back to the previous conversation about needing to maintain margin for uh, for banks and lenders to uh, to allow a project to proceed, or it prevents the project from being viable at all, 
in which case the housing doesn't get built at all and and we know uh what uh you know what a lack of supply we have here for um uh, for all types of housing and and often where this tax is being applied is in you know um large tracts of land and for instance we have some property out in uh in surrey where we're uh where we're going to have to engage in this debate with the uh, assessment authority which is intended to be developed with uh, new small lots single family and townhome product and um you know it would uh, if, if it went forward with this new school tax applied to it it would simply add uh, a whole bunch of costs to those new new uh, townhome units and of course those costs then get passed on through the the eventual sale price of the product right absolutely yeah so there you go contributing to the higher cost of housing um I'm curious too, obviously what a government does is outside of anyone developer's control, but in terms of the things that are within your control, how much wiggle room is there to maybe make processes more efficient to cut down on costs if say property taxes are going up? Are there any other levers you can pull to try and reduce costs in another area? Well, I wish there were, I wish there were more. I mean, the one, the one thing that we certainly have seen over the, the latest run in our real estate market is what we call scope creep. Um, um, and so if you look at the general quality of housing, and it's not not necessarily a bad thing, the general quality of housing, both in and out, uh, in terms of the built product, has improved greatly. And in some cases, probably has gotten a bit carried away in terms of uh, of, of the, uh, the luxury items that are now become almost commonplace, in, particularly in condo, not as much in townhome, but particularly in condo. Um, you know, and that's really the only opportunity we have to, to play with our cost base. Um, it's in the construction costs and, and in the in the, the the fit and finish. I mean, the the buildings to a large degree, and, and what we have to put into the base systems and the uh, the exterior scan of the buildings are completely predicated on needing to meet a whole series of different uh, green building requirements, and those vary again municipality to municipality. And of course, you now have the the step code introduced by the province that a lot of the municipalities have adopted, and so. Even the exterior envelope of buildings, we don't have a lot of flexibility on. It's mostly on the interior finishes and spec inside the unit itself. When it comes to maybe changing those interior finishes, do you come up against expectations of consumers? I'm thinking maybe once where you know a granite countertop or quartz countertop maybe have been a really luxury item, but maybe you have people that just kind of expect to see that and anything less than that, they kind of write it off. What are, what are some of the consumer side trends you're coming up against? Well, that's a great example. I mean, you don't have to go back that far before uh, you find a day where where that was an upgrade or a luxury item to have uh, stone counters in a kitchen, for example. But I think that type of thing has become very much an expectation. And those are expectations that are hard to unravel, you know, and some of the bigger ticket items that we now see are things like air conditioning. Um, I don't think our climate has changed that much, but you would sort of think it has given the number of buildings that are now air conditioned versus uh, 10 years ago, even. Um, it has become almost an expectation, and some of that, some of that relates to again some of the the changes in energy code, where you were uh, you're almost incented to air conditioned buildings because uh, you're you're driven to different systems whereby you know electric baseboard heat's no longer an option, so you end up with forced air heating anyway. So you might as well cool these buildings because the incremental cost is not all that big, and you know so there's a whole snowball effect. But the reality is now once a new standard has been introduced and and is gener- generally being accepted by the marketplace, it is hard to move backwards for sure. 
I feel like I ask you this every time we chat. I ask for your expectations for the year ahead. But looping back to where we started this conversation and in one word, and you said the industry is feeling frustrated in 2019 based on what you're seeing at, say, the municipal government level or even at the provincial level. Do you see any alleviation to that frustration? Do you have any hope on the horizon that maybe things are starting to change? Well, <laughs> I, I hesitate because I think that there. Well, we obviously know there's a by-election coming up in in, uh, in Nanaimo that may that may have a real uh, impact on our government situation at the provincial level. I mean, we could be going to the polls this uh, this year potentially. So that's sort of as an aside. I think uh, you know what what I expect here is that a bit of a settling the dust. You know, I think that frustration that has come from. Uh, our industry trying to grapple with the incredible number of new changes and introduction of new policies, taxes, you name it. And those those were primarily things that actually came about in 2018 and that we're really seeing the effects of and are starting to be implemented now. And as I said, when we talked right around Christmas time or just after, looking forward, I, I see that as the dust settles and, and we get a handle on new cost base and the market sort of settles itself out, um, the second half of, of 2019, I think, will feel a lot better because I think what we need is a, is a is a baseline. People need to feel like they've got feet on the ground. That's both uh, on the industry side as developers, knowing where where we where we stand in terms of things like costs and taxes and all the rest of it. So too does the market need to feel like that that there's just a bit of certainty. And and uh, once that once those uncertainties have sort of uh, flushed their way through the system, I, I think the second half of the year will, will feel better and people will resume a more regular buying pattern. I think a lot of people, including developers, are, are in a bit of a wait and hold pattern right now and, and understandably so. Yeah, fair enough. And of course, all these policy changes are aimed at bringing about greater housing affordability in our region. Do you think we've made some strides toward that? Are we going to maybe see more housing affordability in the region in, in the year or years ahead? Um, you know, I, I suppose we've seen some price relaxation and that might be celebrated in some circles, but I think in the grand scheme of things, you know, where we look at where those price relaxations have generally occurred, it's been, it's been primarily at the very, very high end single family. So uh, I wouldn't want the averages that are talked about, you know, fool us too, too much. I think if you look specifically at the affordability in markets that were considered quote unquote affordable, uh, it hasn't had that great of an impact. Um, and if and, and and that is during a period where we have continued to supply the market with product. If we see periods where where the supply uh, numbers on new housing start start to to um, decrease drastically, that could that could change that equation drastically, and, and uh, we could we could in fact see the opposite happen. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I think there's some good and and certainly a lot of uh, potential negative that could come out of this, and and I don't know that we've seen it all through just yet. Jason, as always, a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. That's Jason Turcott, Vice President of Development at Cressy Development Group. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes and on Stitcher. We also want to get the word out about the show, so please feel free to share episodes via social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. And of course, you can listen to more episodes and read, watch, listen to more business news over at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening.